Well, good morning. My name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City Church. Good to be with you guys. Uh, looking forward to our time in God's Word this morning. Uh, as well, we're looking forward to uh, the marriage seminar this coming weekend. Uh, I think all of us need time to focus on our marriages, if we're honest. Um, for those of us who are married, I promise I'll get this stand right. It'll be better for everyone in the end, right? Um, so for those of us who are married, that, that relationship is like probably one of the single most important relationships uh, in our lives that really affects tons of, of different things. And statistically speaking, if you're not married, you probably will be at some point in time. Uh, I think the stats are upwards of 85 or so percent of people become married at some point. And, and so there's, there's a lot of great stuff about marriage. There's a lot of life and joy that's there. There's a lot of just really encouraging, cool things. Uh, but let's be honest, uh, marriage is not puppies and unicorns all the time, right? Uh, marriage is hard. And I think a lot of times it feels like uh, we're fighting uh, against each other rather than for each other. And um, I think that just really stems out of the fact that it, it's really hard to share a life deeply with someone. Because when you share your life deeply with someone, you, you see the best parts and you see the worst parts. You can't really get away with just one or the other when someone's really involved in your life. And you add kids to that mix and it's like you dialed up the difficulty level to 11, right? It's like you just jumped into legendary mode on Halo 5, and you're regretting that decision, right? It's hard. Marriage is hard, and parenting is hard. Unfortunately, I think uh, a lot of the reasons why it's really hard on us and why there's difficulty and pain in our marriages and in our relationships, uh, I think a lot of the reasons, those things are just really self-inflicted injuries, I was talking with uh, Andy earlier this week uh, and talking with him about what I was preaching on this morning. And uh, Andy said to me, one of the most helpful things that he learned in premarital counseling, he said, I came into premarital counseling convinced that all of the problems in our relationship had to do with poor communication. And I realized that that wasn't true, that all the problems in our relationship have to do with deep selfishness. He said, we don't, uh, we don't, com uh, we communicate just fine. We communicate that the problem is our own selfishness. And I think selfishness is at the heart of much of the pain that is in the conflict and in the hard things in our marriages. And selfishness is sin. It's the belief that, that I am the most important. Not, not God, not my spouse, not another, that I am the most important. And it really begins to radically affect the way that we live. Uh, I think Andy's, Andy's right. Uh, that's something I've noticed as well over the eight years that Hannah and I have been married. And um, I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's not hard to see the deep-rooted selfishness that is in us. Um, but I know for me, it took me a long time to come to grips with the depth of that attitude in my heart. Like, it, it, it was easy for me to see, like, yeah, there's selfish tendencies in me. Okay, it's not that, well, you know, we can work on it. It'll be okay, right? And it took a number of years for me to realize like the, the, like the weight of that and the depths of those attitudes in my heart and how much they really drove so much of who I was. And if I'm honest, I think it's an area of my own heart that I just kind of let grow unchecked for far too long. See, I think when I think back about some of the really hard things in my marriage and in, in, uh, with Hannah, I think... A lot of that has to do with my selfishness being at the root of the conflict and the causes that are there. It's like the belief that our marriage is about me. It's about my happiness and my pleasure and my satisfaction and my joy. And 
uh, God seems to have something different in mind when he talks about marriage and the picture that he paints for what marriage is really about. And uh, we've been going through the book of Ephesians, if you've been with us at all. And one of the, the key underlying themes that the Apostle Paul has been painting to uh, the, peop- the, the, the readers of this letter in Ephesus is that everything in the Christian life is ultimately about God. That every part of our lives as followers of Jesus, its purpose, its design, its point, all of it is about him and for him. In chapters 1 and 2, we saw that our salvation, our adoption, our forgiveness, that all of those things, the phrase that kept coming up over and over again, they were all to the praise of his glory. They weren't about us. They were about him. In chapter 3, we saw the, this image of the church, a, a people, whom which God would reconcile with himself and with one another. People he would give a new identity and a new purpose, and their purpose was to be about him, to reveal his power and his goodness, to be his representatives, to be his ambassadors, living as a community that never could have existed apart from his reconciling and redeeming love. And then in chapter 4 and 5, just the past few weeks, we've seen that the purpose of every part of our lives, our actions and our attitudes and the way that we relate in this community and the way that we relate in all kinds of ways, that all of those things are intended to reveal something about God. They're intended so that the world might see something about our Father. They reveal the family that we've been adopted into and that we're now a part of. You see, none of us, none of it is about us. The God of the universe is really really concerned with his glory as he should be, right? God is not just all-powerful, though. He is also really good. And God, his goodness shows it's in his incredible fatherly love for us as his kids, not as his subject, as his kids. See, the truth is incredibly good news for us, right? God, in his great concern for his glory, has it invited us to join in that as his kids, to celebrate it and enjoy it with him. It's like every day should be Father's Day, right? That's the kind of invitation that God is giving us as his kids to be a part of, to be a part of celebrating him and enjoying him and making much of him. And that's like such an incredibly good gift. So is it any surprise then that that marriage is also about him? That if every other part of our lives is about him and for him and unto him, meant to reveal him to the world, then is it any surprise that our marriages have the same purpose? See, our deep-rooted selfishness causes us to think and believe that our marriages are about us. (laughs) That the primary design and purpose is for our companionship or our friendship with another, therefore our satisfaction or joy or pleasure or whatever it is. Don't get me wrong, I think that marriage brings so much of that. But it's not the design and purpose of those things. I think far too often we we either ignore or we just flat out reject what we know to be true about God's purposes for marriage. See, his primary design and purpose in marriage is to bring him glory. God invented it. He designed it. He thought it up. He knows how it works. So if we are going to see it as he does and live in response to make much of him with it, then we've got to see marriage as he does, and we've got to live in accordance with how he set it up. 
See, this morning, Paul is going to show us in the latter part of Ephesians 5 that because the design and purpose of marriage is to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church, that it's crucial that husbands and wives exemplify a sacrificial love and humble submission. Because the point of marriage is to reveal, to paint a picture, to show of this image of Christ and the church, this, this gospel-centered relationship, then the way that we act in, in, in that relationship has to be in line with that revelation, right? Um, I, I don't really work out. Maybe you can tell, right? Um, but in college, I had a friend that really loved working out, and I would go to work out with him sometimes. And one time, uh, I was already at the gym, and he called me and was like, I can't make it today. So I'm sitting there, and I'm like, well, might as well go in, right? I'm already here, whatever, right? Um, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing, right? And I'm pretty sure I look something like this, right? I don't always go to the gym, but when I do, I have no idea what I'm doing, right? I did not understand the design and the purpose for any of the stuff in that gym, Right? I have no idea how it works, right? And so I'm just like sitting on stuff, and I'm sure there's football players running around just like, that guy is an idiot, right? I didn't know what the purpose of all the machines was. I didn't know what their design was, and I used them totally wrong. I did not work out. I got worked out, right? That's what happened, right? And I think as similar, as in a lot of ways, it's the, sim- the same for our marriages, Right? In order for our marriages to reveal Christ as they were intended, we've got to look to the designer. We've got to ask him how they're supposed to work and what they're supposed to be used for. It's only then that our marriages can bring the life and joy and fulfillment they were intended and designed to bring when their primary purpose is about revealing Jesus. This morning, Paul's going to give us God's vision for marriage in Ephesians 5. And then he's going to give some specific instructions for husbands and for wives. So let's uh, read the passage, and we'll pray and dive into God's Word this morning. Ephesians 5, beginning in uh, verse 21, says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body, and for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. God, help us uh, see your word uh, for our good and for our great joy, and ultimately for your glory. God, we want to put ourselves under the authority of your word and and to be led and guided by what you have to say about uh, what our marriages should look like. 
So God, uh, would you continue to fill me with your spirit that I might speak words of truth that give life um, as you do, Gabe. And so we pray these things in your good name. Amen. Amen. Well, God's design for marriage, its intended purpose, the passage talks about the, the point of it, is that it would reveal the relationship between Christ and the church. Throughout Scripture, um, God refers to himself as the bridegroom. And he refers to his people as the bride. And the picture of the bride is not like this beautiful white wedding gown. It's not everything in order. The picture of a bride is like out of a horror story, right? It's one full of infidelity and rejection and unfaithfulness and loss. It's full of rejection from the bride. And the picture of the bridegroom in the story throughout Scripture is incredibly glorious, especially in contrast to the bride. You see, the picture that God paints about himself as the bridegroom is one of faithfulness and commitment and sacrificial love, one of kindness and patience, one that's all about redemption. The picture that God paints is that he's the faithful groom who forgives and renews and restores. He doesn't reject his bride, but instead he woos her again and he invites her to return to him to be forgiven, to be renewed, to be restored. It's a pretty shocking and scandalous picture that God paints about his relationship with this bride. The book of uh, Hosea um, is, again, a further image or a picture into that. See, we, we are the bride. We are the ones who've been unfaithful. We are the ones who haven't kept ourselves pure for the groom. We are the ones who have rejected and run away from God. We're the church as well. That Ephesians 5 speaks of here. We're the church, the people that God gave himself up for to make holy, who he nourished and cared for. The church is not a place. The church is a people. See, River City Church is just little C church, right? We're a part of capital C church, the, the church universal, God's people throughout all of the world. And so in response to all that God has done, we, we wholly give ourselves back to him in submission to him. Out of love and gratitude, we submit to God in everything, not to earn his favor, but because we have favor that we never could have earned. And so we live life his way, and we live for his purposes and his glory, and it results in our good. And so the design and purpose of marriage then is to show this incredible relationship between a faithful bridegroom, one who loved his bride incredibly. The design and purpose of marriage is to reflect that relationship between Christ and the church. And so the way that husband and wives relate to each other is critical. The passage begins with instructions for wives, but uh, we're going to fast forward to the instructions for husbands because I think it sets a, a helpful framework for the lens of that conversation. Again, as we walk through this, I want us to just like have at the front of our minds that Paul is laying out for us this morning God's heart for the purpose and design of marriage, what he longs for it to be and what he's designed it for. So let's seek to uh, put our hearts under his authority. Verse 23, the passage begins with instructions for husbands. The husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. 
I think uh, many have wrongly understood this word headship to be about authority, about being in charge. Um, headship is not about being in charge. Headship is about being held responsible. One pastor writes this, headship is not domineering authority, but rather responsible accountability. There's a picture of this all the way in, in Genesis chapter 3. When sin enters the world and Adam and Eve uh, eat the fruit that they're not supposed to, who does God come to first? He comes to Adam first. He holds Adam accountable for what happened in his, the relationship between Adam and Eve. And unfortunately, like a lot of men, Adam just passes the buck, right? He just says, oh, it wasn't really my fault. She made me do it. It's really her fault. And in that story, there is this deep tension that's there. It's like a, dude, like, get your crap together, man. <laughs> like, that's not how you relate. There's this tension that's in the story. There's a longing for a better Adam, a husband would, who would be a better head, who would take responsibility. And there's this foreshadowing at the end of chapter 3 of Christ who would come and take responsibility. See, unlike Adam who was complicit in the sin, Jesus is holy yet he still takes responsibility for his bride's actions, for the church, that he would lay his life down for her good and for her holiness. The tone and posture of the headship that's talked about here in Ephesians is not domineering authority, it's a responsible accountability. It's not focused on himself, it's focused on the good and the flourishing of his wife. See, headship is a leadership that seeks the flourishing of those who are under your care. Headship is a leadership that seeks the flourishing of those who are under your care. And the passage says that that kind of leadership is marked by sacrificial love. Verse 25 goes on and says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The word that's used for love here is agape. It's a special kind of love. It's, it's used to refer to the way that God has loved us. And so marriage often begins with just a normal human romantic kind of love, right? But God's word said it has to become so much more than that. Paul makes it clear that as a husband, I'm to love my wife as Christ loved the church. And the picture that God paints in that picture is one that he was willing to die for her. One commentator articulated it this way, the measure of a man's love is not seen only in gifts or words, but in acts of sacrifice and concern for his wife's happiness and welfare. You can love, say that you love somebody, right? But your actions really, they reveal what's true about how you feel. Loving Hannah looks like me actively putting her needs and desires before my own. In, in our life, I think a lot of what that means is me scheduling my life in a way that matters to her needs. Um, as a pastor, my, my hours are relatively flexible in when they happen. And so because my schedule is flexible, I try to work around in, in ways that maybe are inconvenient for me, but are really helpful for her. I take one morning off a week because I work here on Sundays, obviously in the mornings, um, and I don't just tell Hannah, hey, I'm going to take this day off. I ask her, hey, what would work best? What's the, what's the best way? When, when would that work best for you and for our family and for our kids? 
If I still have work to do on Saturdays, which often happens, that happens after our kids are in bed and often after she is in bed too. And I do that not because I work great at night, but because I need to put her needs before my own. I think it looks like taking initiative and caring for our kids rather than always having to be asked to do that. Um, I get up with the kids in the morning so Hannah can wake up slowly. She's probably been up with them at least a few times over the course of the night. I try to look for ways to give her rest and to help her grow. As a mom, any of you guys who are moms, you realize that like being a mom is 24-7, 365. Like, you don't really get vacations. You don't really get breaks. You don't really get days off. The weekend is just a regular work day, right? Um, and so on Wednesday nights, uh, I take the kids when I come home from work. Hannah is a planner, and so knowing that there is a space that's coming for rest for her, like that really like helps her get through the week and helps her go through what she's going through. Um, when she knows that a break is coming, it really blesses her. And then I try to take the kids at other points in the week. Um, I don't know, I can't tell you how many times I've been stopped at the grocery store with Emma and Caleb in the car seat by old ladies or other moms who are like, you're here by yourself? Like, my husband wouldn't even take half a kid to the grocery store, right? And they're meant as compliments, but really, they're like, like, there's this deep tension in my heart when someone says that to me because I realize they mean it as a compliment, but really, it's sad. Why aren't there more husbands that would be willing to take their kids to give their wives rest? Yes, it's hard. Sometimes it does not go well, right? There have been a few screaming fests in the grocery store, right? But it's always worth it. I try to prioritize her desires above my own. Before I go anywhere or leave the house, I'm always asking, hey, is there anything that I can do before I leave? It's not because I don't have my own plans or priorities. It's because I want to put what matters to her before what matters to me. Now, uh, before you do something crazy and think like that I am like, a, like an all-star husband or something like that, you should just talk to Hannah. I did this week, right? Uh, I asked her, right? I was like, how do I show you that I'm more concerned about myself than about you? What makes you feel unloved and uncared for? Like, real quickly, right? He said, when you disengage when you come home from work, especially when you're consumed with your phone and your technology. Man, that, like, that is just like right at the heart, right? I feel like I'm doing so good. There's got to be, I'm like, there's, I'm sure she'll be like, everything's fine. You do a great job, right? But she had like a, she knew what was, she knew the answer to that question. And for a while, I felt like pretty defensive about that. <laughs> but it's true. I just didn't want to hear it, right? And there's an invitation in that for me to continue to lay down my own priorities, to, to lay down the fact that I just want to do what I want to do when I get home from work. <laughs> and rather, the invitation that Jesus says is, um, you get to do what you want to do when you have satisfied the desires of everyone else that you are in charge of care for. And so that looks like when people are taking naps and I've helped in every way I can, that's when I get time for me. <laughs> or after everyone is in bed. That is like, man, that has been such a painful process of God's sanctification in my heart. I felt like when we were dating, 
some of that selfishness kind of came up, and I was like, oh, yeah, I dealt with that. Like, that, yeah, we've worked through that. I'm past that, right? And then I got married. And this, like, deep-rooted selfishness has came out in how I wanted to spend our money and how I wanted to spend our time and how I wanted to have our house or our place be what I wanted it to be. And then we had kids. And I had even less about me and even less about what I wanted to do. And in all of that, there has been this like gracious word from the Lord to my heart to remember, to remember all that he has done on my behalf. To remember how he saw me as more valuable than himself. The passage uh, closes its instructions for husbands by talking about the goal of that sacrificial love. So the husband is to be a head who's marked, whose leadership is marked by a sacrificial love And it says the goal of that love is that it would be about the sanctification of his wife. Verse 25 and 26, Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, 26, to make her holy, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain. As husbands, we don't make our wives holy, right? That's Jesus' role. He does that, right? But we live in such a way with a similar intent to come alongside what Christ is doing in our wives' lives, to be about that increasing Christ-likeness in her character. John Stott writes this about husbands who are motivated and led by Christ's love. He says, He will never seek to crush or stifle his wife or to frustrate her from being herself. His love for her instead will lead to the exact opposite path. He will give himself for her in order that she would develop her full potential under God and so become completely herself. See, the true beauty of our wives is displayed when they become all that God has longed for them to be in Christ. Verse 27 says that Jesus is going to present his church as a radiant bride. The word that's used for radiant there, it refers to the idea of glory. John Stott continues to write this way. I just, I just like found myself just like crying as I read these words and meditated on them on this week. He said, Glory is the radiance of God, the shining forth, the manifestation of his otherwise hidden being. So too the church's true nature will become apparent. On earth she is often in rags and tatters, stained and ugly, despised and persecuted, but one day she will be seen for what she is. Nothing less than the very bride of Christ himself free from spots and wrinkles, any other disfigurement, holy, without blemish, beautiful and glorious. It's to this end that Christ works and that he continues to labor. That's speaking of you and me. Christ's sacrificial love for us is what makes us good. It's what makes us beautiful, even though we are often stained and ugly. So likewise, The Christ-like love of a husband is meant for the sanctification of his wife as its primary goal, her ever-increasing Christ-like character, her true beauty displayed in her reflection of King Jesus. Man, I want that to be my heart all the time for my wife. So it's this kind of headship marked by sacrificial love that seeks the flourishing and the growth of the wife that the husband is called to. And it's what frames the the commands for the wife in the passage. 
Verse 22, the instructions for wives say this. Verse 22, wives, submit, to your, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. So if the role of a husband is to sacrificially love, then the role of a wife then is to submit. So the question is, what does that mean, right? Submission, I think, I, I did a lot of digging this week to come up with a helpful, I just feel like no one ever tries to, to succinctly describe what that means. I think most times people are just afraid, right, of trying to say something. But the best I can, the, what just makes sense to me is this. Submission is a voluntary attitude of cooperation, of encouragement, and of help. It's a coming alongside, and it's a supporting. It's submission, that attitude is in contrast to a begrudging participation. It's in contrast to a fighting or a passive-aggressive attitude in your relationship. And it's instead of being critical when things get hard. The Bible uses the word helper to describe Eve, Adam's wife. And I've heard that often, but in my studies this week, I I found this really helpful nugget. Um, Elsewhere in the Bible, that word is used to describe military reinforcements that are needed to win the battle. Kathy Keller in The Meaning of Marriage says this, to help someone then is to make up for what is lacking in him with your strength. God knew your husband was lacking and gave him you to be his strong reinforcements. And I'm so grateful for how my wife has exemplified that over the years of our marriage together. Susan Eaton writes this. She says, As wives, our submission is a gift then to our husbands that we offer with a humble heart. We choose to submit to our husbands as a way of loving and honoring them. Imitating Jesus doesn't show weakness, but rather greatness, as we die to ourselves for the good of our marriage. It becomes a visual picture of Christ's love and his glory. So if that's what submission is, then the question is, what does it look like? Um, And instead of me trying to invent great ideas as a dude, I went and sought the wise counsel of some women who are godly women who love the Lord and who, who grow in that. And so here's some of the the things that they said and some of the things that I kind of processed with them. Um, Submission is is in a lot of ways shown in how how you speak to your husband. Are you encouraging him, building him up, affirming the godly things that you see in him? Or is your spirit one of condescending, critical, or belittling? How you speak to your husband in front of other people has an incredible weight. It matters a lot. There are few things more damaging to a man's heart than to be like belittled or talked down to in front of others. In decision making, are you constantly questioning where your husband is trying to help lead and guide and direct your family? Not that you're uninvolved, but are you, are you the one that is questioning what's happening or are rather are you affirming or encouraging him to lead and guide? Again, this is not about being absent or uninvolved, about just being passive in decisions that are made for your family, but rather it's, it's a standing behind. It's an affirming, it's a supporting, the, the leading of your husband in those situations. It's saying, I trust you. Thanks for willing, being willing to lead and take responsibility for where our family is heading. Taking responsibility is really hard. <laughs> and in our world, like, the idea of men taking responsibility is like an idea that's just getting jettisoned. The affirming of those things by a wife means an incredible amount. 
Lastly, uh, submission is characterized by a willingness and a voluntary, humble attitude and spirit. It's not a begrudging or a resentful or a reluctant attitude, but it's, it, it's so obvious, right, when someone isn't actually behind you. It makes all the difference in the world when it's clear that there is a willingness and a voluntary coming alongside and supporting so if that's what submission means and looks like, then I, we need to be clear what submission does not mean. Submission does not mean that you have less value or worth. Jesus himself submitted himself to the Father. He did not become less valuable in his submission. In fact, the Father says that because he did that, he raised him above the name that's above all names and that he uh, gave him all glory and honor and power. Secondly, submission does not mean unconditional obedience. A lot of godless and idiotic men have used these verses and others like that to harm and abuse women. And that is about the farthest possible outworking of the truth of the words that are here in Ephesians 5. And God is, I am sure, incredibly furious about that. If you have been harmed by a childish boy who thinks that he's a man and has used words like this to humble or to, to belittle you or to oppress you, then like I can only express my incredible apologies and sorrow for that. And I guarantee you that God is not asking for that from you. Thirdly, I think there's this misconception that submission means that a wife is just kind of like humble in the corner. But rather, what it doesn't mean is that you a wife cannot push back or confront her house or her spouse. I am so thankful for the ways that Hannah has pushed back against my lame leadership over the years. I'm so grateful for the ways that she has confronted me in my own sin. In fact, that was one of the very first things that drew me to her. In college, um, we were, uh, and uh, honestly, I was just like really poorly influencing some of my friends with how they thought about their money. And I remember Hannah coming to me, it was early in our dating relationship, I remember her coming to me and, and calling me out on that and just saying like, you're, you're giving them advice. You're counseling them in a way that doesn't honor the Lord. Stop that. And like, it just caught me off guard, but in such a way that just like, it's like I needed to hear that from you. Thank you for saying that to me. I think a lot of times people ask too, what if my husband isn't a Christian or isn't actively following Jesus? Well, 1 Peter 1 says this, honor the Lord, seek to honor your husband. In doing so, you might win him to the Lord but always put God's commands before anyone else's. In our culture today, the idea of submission seems to many not just to be old-fashioned, but to be barbaric. Many believe that submission is a devaluing of women, or uh, it's making them just a doormat. That's, that's not what's in view here in Ephesians chapter 5. See, submission is only half of the marriage relationship. Keep in mind all we've said about the role of a husband then. It's a responsible accountability, a sacrificial love, a seeking the growth and the flourishing of his wife. It's not fearful submission to an ogre. It's a voluntary submission to, a, to one who deeply loves and cares for you. One who seeks your good and loves you more than he loves himself. See, submission is about submitting to your husband's care for you, believing that God has put him in your life for your good and for your growth and for your flourishing. 
So let's uh, close here this morning. I'm sure I've gone long. If the design and the purpose of our marriages is to reflect Christ and to reflect his relationship with the church, then it's crucial that as husbands and wives that we exemplify sacrificial love and humble submission. I think in order for that to happen, there's just a few things that have to take place for both. One, I think submission and love, for those things to happen, each spouse has to die to themselves every day. Philippians 2 says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others more than yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. See, the way that you put selfishness to death is by remembering the gospel. It's remembering all that Christ did on your behalf. Philippians 2 goes on and says, you have this mindset that's the same as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature with God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So our our sacrificial love and our humble submission is in response to all that Jesus has done for us. And so, like we've talked about in the past few weeks, it requires us to admit to be filled by his spirit and led by him and, and have him live his life through us. Submission and love in marriage have to be done without the need for a response as well. Otherwise, what we're doing is just trying to manipulate the behavior of our spouse. And that's not worship. That's just selfish emotional manipulation. See, Jesus loved us knowing that many of us would reject him entirely. Lastly, I think sanctification and its purpose in our marriages, right? It brings God glory. And so the hard things in our marriage... God wants to use those things to transform us into the likeness of his son, Jesus. Uh, it doesn't make it easier going through the really hard stuff in marriages, but it does give that pain a great purpose and meaning. Marriage is not just an invitation for you to join God in your own sanctification. Uh, one pastor uh, writes this. He says, God is asking us in our marriages to be used to bear the cost of our spouse's sanctification. Man, that is, a, that is a heavy weight. I know my own crap and my own garbage and all that God is renewing and restoring in me. And in marriage, God is saying, I'm not asking you just to be concerned about yours. I'm asking you to bear the burden of the sanctification of your wife. The hurt and the pain that will come, the sting of sin and selfishness that inevitably is part of every marriage. Jesus felt that on our behalf. He bore that on our behalf. The invitation for then is us, for us to imitate him, to walk as he did, to live as he did in response in our marriages. I think what happens with me is that I put way too much stock in this lifetime. I'm reminded this week in my studies. God is at work producing in me 
he's at work in producing in my wife something that, is, that has eternal effects. His renewing and restoration of us, our sanctification, is not ultimately about here and now. It's ultimately about the joy of eternity and treasuring him. That our lives would be about his worship and his praise and his glory. And so the hard things in marriage can be worth it then when they're viewed in light of the eternal effects that God is bringing about within us. The call that the Apostle Paul offers to us here in Ephesians 5 is not light or easy. It's really hard. In fact, it's impossible without Jesus being the one who is renewing and restoring us. And so the invitation for us is to allow our marriages as yet one another component of our lives to be ultimately about him and for him. That's a heavy weight. It, it, it's a lot, right? And Jesus has said, I'll do it with you. I'll go before you to show you how to live. I'll empower with you with my spirit so that you have the hope of living as I've called you to. Let me live through you that your life might be worship unto me. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for your word and for who you are and all that you've done for us. King Jesus, we, uh, man, <sighs> you are an incredibly glorious bridegroom. One who is marked by faithfulness and holiness and an incredible redeeming love for us your unfaithful bride. God, and so we just come with humble hearts longing to give ourselves over to you. God, in response to all that you've done for us, that every part of who we are and every part of our lives would be unto you and for you and about you and worship unto you, King Jesus. And so we ask just humbly that you would reorient continually our hearts in the way that we see our marriages and our, and our roles as husband and our roles as wife within marriage. God, we thank you for the incredible privilege and honor that you've given us, that we would get to reflect something about you, that we would get to show the world what you're like and who you are in our marriages. God, we don't deserve that privilege and that honor, but you've so graciously given it to us. Help us to help us to like wear that well. And so, God, we just come knowing that we need your strength and we need your power. And so we lay ourselves down at your feet that you might use us to make much of yourself. Pray these things in your good name.